Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. I'm going to begin reading in uh, verse 15. We're going to start uh, by reading this portion of God's Word, a portion that we have become increasingly familiar with over the last several uh, weeks and months. Ephesians 5, verse 15. I'm going to start reading in verse 15 and read to the end of the chapter. So follow along in your copy of the Bible, as um, I do, or the one in the pew. And again, if you don't have one, feel free to take one from the pew. We would love for you to have a copy of God's Word. Ephesians 5, verse 15. Hear then what Holy Scripture says. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish. Understand, though, what the Lord's will is. Do do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the Word and to present her to Himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of His body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. We are talking these days uh, about marriage, and our focus has been on these verses Uh, This passage is the lens through which we have been thinking about what the Bible says about how the gospel shapes how you live as a husband or a wife. Uh, There have been several interruptions to this study that we've had, um, which is why I've posted the dates that we've been doing these things in the uh, bulletin. We started several weeks ago. Do you remember when we opened up verse 31 and we traced it back to its origin in the book of Genesis and we were trying to ask the why question. Why did God make marriage? Some people say God made marriage to produce children. That's a good answer. Some people say God made marriage for the good of society so that there would be a order in society and so uh, society would have an, uh, an organizational structure around it. That's, that's a good answer. Some people say uh, that God made marriage for loneliness so people wouldn't be lonely. 
I hope marriage, if you're married, is, is good toward that end in your life. But I think that the scriptures indicate to us that God brought Adam and Eve together. He made the woman for man so that, that Adam would be able to fulfill his uh, commission from God. Marriage is ultimately about God. Adam was responsible under God to watch and care for the garden, or to put it in another way, to spread the knowledge of God's glory all over the world. Adam was supposed to extend the boundaries of the Garden of Eden into the rest of the world so that, where God, so that uh, God would be loved and known all over the world. Um, in, in now, in our day, under the New Covenant, marriage is, is similar. We spread the knowledge of the glory of God, but it has a, the flavor of the cross. We spread the knowledge of God's glory as manifest in His Son, Jesus Christ. Your Husband, your wife is your partner under God in extending this glory, this knowledge of the glory. Uh, one way that husbands and wives testify to Christ's glory is by living out the gospel. And we spent some time in Ephesians 5 talking about how husbands in particular uh, love like Christ loved the church. And wives in particular model the faith-filled submission of the church. Right now we're in a phase that's removed somewhat from Ephesians 5. We're unpacking two words that the Song of Songs uses to describe marriage. The, the bride in chapter 5 of the Song of Songs in that love poem says of her husband, this is my lover, this is my friend. Uh, these are the two bonds of marriage that, that, what, that makes marriage a unique relationship. You and your spouse are lovers and friends. And today I want to talk to you about the lover's part of that equation. We're going to be talking about sexual intimacy in marriage. Uh, during our August prayer meeting, Josh Bittner uh, shared with us from Romans 6. And, and before he started, he said, he apologized, because unlike me, uh, when I speak, he didn't have a good story with which to introduce his devotional. <laughs> um, I don't have a story today. Usually I, I want to plant an image in your mind uh, that, that shows you why you need to hear what God's Word has to say, or that's to introduce you how to how God's Word applies. I don't have a, a story today. In fact, um, I'm not sure that I need one for this topic. Do I? Uh, someday I have this. I have a, a, a goal. Someday that I'm going to preach a sermon. I, I don't think I'll do it here, but um, I, I have a goal that I'm going to say. This is going to be how I'm going to start. I'm going to say today. Uh, if you're taking notes for the sermon, I have a one-word introduction and three points. Here's my introduction. Sex. Point one. That's how I'd like to start someday. Uh, there are a few topics that you can do that with. Um, in fact, you might argue that there is no topic like sex that has the potential to incite such interest. It's a topic that's uh, pregnant with pleasurable possibilities, and yet, for some of you this morning, it's loaded with, with pain and disappointment and frustration. Is there any aspect of humanity that is so close to your identity, yet where there can be such a combination of glory and guilt, anticipation and fear, such longing and such revulsion at the same time? In, in the few minutes 
we have together, I want to talk to you about what sex is supposed to do in your marriage, what, what it's for, what God intended it to do. And I want to uh, share with you six word pictures or analogies or, or comparisons. Uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, this is not the normal way that we open God's word. Not just because of the topic, I will say. Um, usually, our normal practice is to walk very carefully through books of the Bible. In fact, we've been doing that in Ephesians for several months, uh, and uh, we've just uh, uh, are building on what Paul says about marriage here in the, the, over the summer. We have been a, a little bit. Um, I, I don't have a specific text this morning. In fact, I'm going to refer to most often to themes and allusions and images in the Bible. I'm going to read a few passages that are written for you for your convenience here on this sheet if, if you want to follow. This is different than our normal course, but let, let's, let's begin. The first image that I want you to consider this morning is this. Sex is like an arrow. Sex is like an arrow. It points to ultimate pleasure. Sex is like an arrow in that it points to ultimate pleasure. It's a sign. It's a directional marker. Uh, If you were to go outside the church and and ask around, talking to people about what they think about sex, among the many things that you would hear, two themes, I think, would emerge. First, most people would tell you that sex is, is fun. It feels good. It's pleasure. The second thing that you would hear is, especially if they heard you were associated with a church, is that Christianity, because it places boundaries around sex, is not fun. In fact, the the fact that the Bible says that sexual intimacy is for marriage and marriage alone is repressive. It's unhealthy. It's ludicrous in this world to, to think this. Sex is meant for pleasure, and there's no reason to put any boundaries around pleasure. Now, now I want to speak uh, sensitively today, and I know, I know that for some of you here this morning, sex is not something you associate with pleasure, but with something you associate with pain and grief and abuse. But the fact that what may have happened so long ago is still affecting you today is a reminder that sex has tremendous potential for both pleasure and pain. It is undeniable. Uh, sex is, is pleasure, pleasurable. John, John Piper writes about this, and he wants us to marvel at the fact that this is a good gift from God. What if, he says, instead of making sex enjoyable, God had determined that you would get sick if you didn't have sex regularly? You would say to your, your, your spouse, honey, can we be together tonight? I just don't feel well. It would change things, I think, in your relationship. Sex is pleasurable, but it's not ultimate pleasure. Uh, let's begin with about some real reality about the topic. I can demonstrate that sex is not ultimate pleasure. I can do it easy, uh, easily. I know that sex is not ultimate pleasure because God, who is the happiest being in the universe, does not have a body and does not have sex. God's Son, who is filled with inexpressible joy, walked on the earth for 33 years and did not have sex. Sex is not the only, nor is it the ultimate pleasure, but it points us to ultimate pleasure. Scripture tells us what the ultimate pleasure will be. Uh, Let me remind you, if I can, for just a minute about how the Bible ends. In the book of Revelation, when Jesus Christ has defeated sin and evil and death for good, and all unrighteousness and rebellion has been judged, the Bible speaks in terms of a wedding. 
There will be the marriage supper of the Lamb, and the people of God, dwellers of a heavenly city, will descend from heaven like a bride. The Bible ends as most weddings begin. I, I like to officiate at weddings. It's one of the joys of my job. And I get a, I get a great view. I'm always up front as the bride enters. Everybody turns around. Uh, and, and looks at the bride. That's the moment when I make sure that my tie is straight. <laughs> everybody's looking at the back, and they're all focused on her as, as she, she enters. I had a friend in college who w- once said to me, he said, he was a romantic soul, he said, uh, I don't look at the, br- at the bride when she comes down, I look at the groom because he is, at that moment, the happiest guy in the room, and I want to see his face. I wasn't married at the time, but that, that made me feel a lot of pressure. I remember the day I got married, Kathy was coming down the aisle, and I think, now what does my happiest face ever look like? <laughs> you know, I, you just... And what if it's not a happy enough face? There is the bride, Revelation, the bride comes. There's the wedding feast. And what follows... Wedding feasts and bride, uh, uh, weddings and wedding feasts normally is consummation. There is the consecration of the marriage and then the consummation of the wedding, of the marriage, the, the wedding night. But the Bible does not describe what happens in Revelation that way. The image passes. There's wedding imagery, there's feast imagery, but there's no wedding night imagery. In fact, the Bible directs us in a completely different direction to a different joy. This actually is one of the ways that the Bible is different from ancient literature. Ancient Greek and Roman literature, ancient Canaanite literature, all of it describes the gods as being sexual beings, perverted sexual beings. The Bible is not that way at all. In fact, the Bible goes to great lengths to distance God from any notion of the fact that he is a sexual being. Um, look with me at Revelation 22, 1 to 4, at the consummation that takes place here. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him. Here is the climax, the consummation here. They will see His face. And His name will be on their foreheads. The consummation of all history, the wonder of wonders, the climax of the Bible is in that great day we are going to see God's face. And that is ultimate pleasure. After your wedding, you had the joy of sexual union. After the marriage supper of the Lamb, this is the joy. This is the point to which all of the Bible directs our attention. The joy of seeing the glory of God with an unveiled face. Seeing God's glory is a major theme in the Bible. I'm not sure how this strikes you to think about seeing God face to face, but it has been the longing of people from the beginning of God's word. It, it was the desire of Moses. He, he said to, to, to God in Exodus 33, 34, show me your glory. And God said, no one may see my glory and live. The Apostle John in his gospel kind of echoed Moses' request. And he said to us that we see 
God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Peter, James, and John saw the unveiled glory of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration and about did them in. Paul says this uh, when he describes what it's like to become a Christian. Becoming a Christian is like seeing the glory of the gospel, glory of the face of Jesus Christ in the gospel. Seeing God. You may not uh, be able to experience any physical pleasure greater than sexual intimacy. It might be the highest physical form of of pleasure. But seeing the face of God will be 10,000 times greater than sex. And the only way to treat sexual intimacy realistically is to recognize that as great as it is, it has its limits. Now, there are several implications of seeing sex like like an arrow. Uh, Let me just mention a couple of them. One, it shapes what you expect from sex. If you expect ultimate pleasure, you will weigh it down. If you weigh it down with ultimate expectancy, it will always disappoint you. You will be placing a weight on sex that it cannot hold. How long was it in your marriage before you discovered that sex doesn't always work like you thought it did? was probably on your honeymoon. Uh, when I was in high school, we had uh, the option of participating in some intellectual challenge for, for gifted little children. Um, and uh, they would give us long, thin strips of balsa wood. Maybe you, you've seen this exercise. Long, thin strips of balsa wood. And you were to take the balsa wood and build a tower out of the balsa wood, gluing it together. It had to be a certain height and couldn't, could only have certain dimensions. You built a tower. And then on the appointed day, you took your tower to the competition site and they would uh, uh, um, uh, evaluate your tower by putting weights on it. And they'd start by putting f- uh, five pounds and six and seven. And, and the, the, the tower that won... The, the little student that won was the tower that lasted the longest, with the, that held the most weight. If, if you expect sexual intimacy to give you ultimate pleasure, you will crush it. You will be disappointed. It will devastate you. Sex doesn't always work easily or smoothly. And if you know that it's just a pointer, just an arrow, you, you can laugh about it. You, you can be free and frivolous and relaxed about the fact that it doesn't always work. Seeing sex like an arrow also shapes why you pursue purity. It shapes what you expect from sex, and it shapes why you pursue purity. If you're not married, and you believe that, ultimate se- that sex is the ultimate pleasure, then you will, in your life, feel the temptation to think that God is cheating you. Well, you can feel this temptation if, if, you're, if you're having issues in your uh, sexual intimacy for those disappointing times. If you think it's supposed to give you ultimate pleasure and it doesn't, you'll, you may face the temptation, God is cheating me. God places boundaries around sex and, and if you're not married, so God is holding out on you. God is not letting you have what is the best thing that, that you can ever have if, if you believe that sex is ultimate pleasure. And that that God is holding out on me can make you angry and resentful. And you might deal with that anger or resentment by soothing your sorrows and pornography. But remember how Jesus Christ described the battle for purity in Matthew 5, 8. Remember what he said? The blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. 
Pursue purity. Stop sleeping with your girlfriend. Stop comforting yourself with masturbation, not just because it's wrong or unholy, and it is, but because you are pursuing ultimate pleasure in a source that will disappoint you. Say no to sexual immorality because you want more of God. You want to see him. You want to know him more intimately. Sex is not ultimate pleasure. It's a pointer to it. Sex is like an arrow. Second here, sex is like a vacation. Sex is like a vacation. It provides you with rest and refreshment. Uh, Did you go on a vacation this summer? Uh, It might not have been restful, uh, but that was the goal, wasn't it? Didn't, didn't you, you went on vacation hoping to have a moment, at least a moment, where you were sitting in the woods or on the beach and you just rested. Sex is supposed to fill you with that similar uh, refreshment. If I understand the purpose of marriage correctly, God has called you and your spouse together in a challenging task. You are called to spread the knowledge of God's glory through the the message of Jesus Christ into a broken world. You're to spread that knowledge to little sinners that God might give you in your life. Um, In a world where work is toilsome and where there's brokenness and evil and, and sex is God's gift of refreshment. It's like the Sabbath. It's, it's the, the time where you rest and refresh. Now, how do, I, how do I know this? Again, I want to think with you about the beginning, actually the end and the beginning of the Bible. You know, the Bible begins and ends with a garden. Uh, in the perfect world that God made, Adam and Eve lived in a garden. Not like your garden with your tomatoes and squash and weeds and Japanese beetles, but, but in a, a garden like Longwood Gardens. Just a beautifully manicured, ma- uh, landscaped, floral, wonderful place. The Bible ends with a garden too. Um, we, read, we read already from Revelation about the trees and the river uh, in Revelation 22. Uh, Before sin entered the world and after God removes it permanently, uh, it describes the world as a beautiful, peaceful, refreshing garden. But there's another garden in the Bible. Notably, it's in the Song of Songs. In this erotic love poem that is in the middle of the Bible, Scripture very delicately and very carefully describes sex between a husband and wife, and it's filled with garden imagery here. Listen, uh, as a matter of fact, to, to the consummation. This is described in Song of Songs 4.16. This is the blushworthy part. Look, look what it says. The bride speaks. Awake, north wind, and come, south wind. Blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread abroad. Let my lover come into his garden and taste its choice fruit. And the husband speaks. I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. Now God speaks. God's there? Yes, God's there. He says, eat, O friends, and drink. Drink your fill, O lovers. Sex is God's gift to provide you in this broken world with rest and refreshment and joy. When you give yourself to your spouse, you are giving the gift to another of of satisfaction and peace and happiness. Now, this is closely related to the next image that we want to talk about, one which we're not going to spend a significant amount of time on. Uh, Number three, sex is like a fountain. Sex is like a fountain in that it overflows into blessing for others. 
Now, here's what, what I mean. Marriage is about God. Marriage is for others to spread the knowledge of God's glory through Jesus Christ. If that's the ultimate purpose, and at the heart of your marriage, it is a happy and restful and refreshing experience, then that happiness will overflow. That is, the joy that you experience behind closed doors where the only participants are you and your spouse and the only witness is God will overflow into happiness with others, your children, your neighbors, the church, society. Again, think of that garden imagery. The best gardens are productive gardens. And when your relationship with your husband and wife is sweet and refreshing and filling, uh, fulfilling, it fills your home with the sweet aroma of fresh flowers. Uh, this is, by the way, why sex is not just a private affair. Uh, Wendell Berry argued this in his book called Sex, Economy, Freedom, and Community. Uh, Wendell Berry argued that the health of a sex in your marriage inevitably affects other people. Uh, he, he uses themes that we're going to get to in a minute. But when you practice love, uh, giving, service, and commitment behind closed doors to one person, it will overflow into giving and service and love outside of those closed doors. If sex is, like many in our society believe, merely what you get for your own pleasure, for your own recreational fun, the consequences will be the creation of a society and children that come from unions that are not marked by love and sacrifice and giving. Wendell Berry says that the reason that there are so many children with so many psychological scars in our world is because they're the product of selfish parents and selfish lovers. Sex is like a fountain. Let me, let me ask you a question this morning. Um, have your children affected your sex life? <laughs> That's a silly question, isn't it? Of course. Of course. Aside from the physical challenges and changes that pregnancy and its recovery bring, children change everything about your sex life. When, where, how, or if you have sex. But have you ever considered how your sex life affects your children? Couples who give themselves to one another in a bedroom have an increased capacity to give to their children outside of the bedroom. Sex is like a fountain. That's image three. Here's image four. Sex is like glue. Sex is like glue. It uh, solidifies your covenant. Solidifies your covenant. Uh, occasionally I listen to sermons by a man by the name of P.J. Smith. He pastors a large church in South Africa. And recently I heard him say, the devil does everything to get you into bed before you're married and keep you out of bed after you're married. Uh, the devil does everything to keep you in bed before marriage and get you out of bed after marriage. Why? Because sex is like covenant glue. It keeps you and your spouse connected. Tim Keller says that sex is like a covenant renewal intimacy, uh, renewal ceremony. Sexual intimacy is a way of communicating to your spouse that you remain committed to them. I think that's why the Bible uses the term one flesh to describe the bond of marriage. Marriage is more than just your sexual relationship. In fact, your sexual relationship is not the main thing that keep, is keeping your marriage together, but the, the fleshiness of sex mirrors and images that covenant bond. 
Uh, Listen to what Tim Tim Keller wrote about this. Indeed, sex is perhaps the most powerful God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. You must not use, he says, sex to say anything less. Again, this is why the Bible says that sex is for marriage. It's a uniting act. We don't reserve sex for covenant marriage because we have such a low view of sex. We reserve sex for covenant marriage because we have such a high view of sex, of what it can do. Having sex outside of marriage is making promises with your body that you have not made with the rest of your life. C.S. Lewis said, it's like chewing food without swallowing or digesting it. If you repeatedly use the bonding act of sexual intimacy outside of the bond of marriage, you will begin to disintegrate the power of sex in your life. You are sabotaging the power of sex for your future relationships. This analogy doesn't work if you forget the grace of God, but maybe you've heard sex compared to tape before. If you take a piece of tape and you stick it to something and you rip it off and you stick it to something else and you rip it off, eventually the tape will lose its tackiness. If you abuse sex that way, unless God intervenes, it will lose its power in your life to bond you to your spouse. Here's image number five. Image number five. Sex is like a thermometer. Sex is like a thermometer. It indicates the health of your relationship, of your marriage indicates the health of your marriage. Sex tells you how healthy the rest of your marriage is. Um, I, I know there are cases where sex is difficult in marriage due to physical problems. I wouldn't want to eliminate that. Uh, but most sexual problems that a couple faces in marriage are merely the revelation of other issues. Sex is so personal, so intimate, it represents such a moment of vulnerability that it will reveal other problems. Unresolved conflict, a growing sense of distrust, disrespect, an attitude of harshness, resentment. What does your sex life say about the rest of your marriage? You should talk to your spouse about this sometime. Um, Maybe you say, sex, we don't have sex. We're too busy. We're too tired. I bet the rest of your marriage is suffering from neglect too. Our sex is one-sided. Probably the rest of your marriage is too. Our sex life is restricted. It's not free. It's not fun. It's happy. It's tense. It's nerve-wracking. I wonder if it's because you have built up internal walls, places where in your soul you are closed off to your spouse. Sex is like a thermometer. Now here's the last image that I want to share with you this morning. Sex is like a treadmill. (laughs) That's going to need some explanation. Um, Sex is like a treadmill. It gives you the opportunity to exercise your gospel muscles. It gives you the opportunity to exercise your gospel muscles. I told us in seminary that if you have to explain your sermon points, they're not good ones, and this one fails. So let me explain what I mean. All right? Uh, uh, Without much difficulty... You will uncover the prevailing view of sex in our culture. Sex is something you get or something that you take. This is how it's depicted in television and movies. Uh, Young men and increasingly young women um, go to parties. They hook up because they have a need that they want to have met. They want to take something. 
and they want someone who is attractive and somewhat skilled at giving them what they want. There's no relationship. There's just a need that need that must be fulfilled. In contrast to that, the Bible says that sex is not something that you take. Sex is something that you give. Uh, look with me here at First Corinthians chapter seven. Uh, I'm going to start reading in verse four, uh, but we'll come back to verse three in a minute. Uh, the wife's body does not belong to hers, her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, on the basis of verse 4, where Paul says, Husbands, your wife, your body does not belong to your, you alone, it belongs to your wife. And he says to wives, wives, your body does not belong to you, it belongs to your husband. Paul could have said, Therefore, husbands, take what's yours. Therefore, wives, get what's yours. He does not say that. Instead, he says, give. Paraphrase of verse 3. The husband should therefore fulfill his marital duty to his wife. And likewise, the wife to her husband. The, the Bible emphasizes sex as something you give, not something that you take. Now, what is it that changes you from being a taker to a giver? The gospel. The gospel changes you from being someone who is seeking your own satisfaction by taking to someone who finds joy in seeking the satisfaction of another. This is how the gospel changes you. And your sexual relationship is a place where you can exercise your gospel muscles, where you demonstrate to your spouse how the gospel has changed you. Now, I want to share with you, as we finish here, two ways in which the gospel affects your sex life. First, it frees you from shame. It frees you from shame. It is unavoidable that what has happened to you in the past will affect your sex life today. Regardless of how long ago it was or how, uh, what you have done, uh, if you have been the victim of abuse or if you threw yourself into promiscuity or pornography, you carry those things into your marriage. You, you carry them in the form of guilt or regret or condemnation or fear or anger or shame. Some of you, when, when asked to describe you, you would describe yourself as being polluted. I'm polluted by what has happened to me or by what I have done. That's why we hold so dearly to what Paul says in Ephesians 5 when he talks about Christ's work, where he says that Christ washes us with the water of the word. He removes every blemish so that we can be spotless and blameless. The Bible talks about the fact that when Jesus died on the cross, he satisfied God's wrath for our sin. That is, he paid the penalty that we owe, and his death is sufficient justice. We can be forgiven through him. But his death is also cleansing. It washes us. It frees us from the past so that you can build your future with your spouse. That is such good news. And why the gospel belongs in your marriage bed. The gospel enables you to face the past, even as you confront failure today. You will both come to your marriage with some sort of sexual past, some sort of um, thought or exposure. Situations that are the most volatile in marriage are where one partner has fought the fight 
to pure, for purity and comes to his, his or her wedding night as a virgin and the other has not. That's the most difficult situation. Apply gospel truths. Apply the gospel to your shame and your failure. The gospel changes your future, but it starts by freeing you from the shame of your past. There's a second way, though, in which your sex life will give your gospel muscles a chance to exercise. The gospel frees you to serve. Sex is not something you take from your spouse. It's something that you give. Are you giving to your spouse in a way that is appropriate, in a way that he or she appreciates? Very soon into your marriage, you will discover vast differences in what you hope for and desire in your sex life together. How often are you get you together? What sets the right mood? For most men, being conscious is about the only mood-setting atmosphere necessary. When and where do you have sex? Books have been written about the differences between men and women. Why did God make us so different? In part, it provides you with the opportunity to exercise sacrificial giving. The Bible tells us to prefer one another. Romans 12.10, the ESV says, outdo one another in honor. Can you imagine what sexual intimacy would look like if you did everything you could to outdo your spouse in your giving of yourself to them? Uh, how, how would you show preference to your wife's concerns? How would you uh, cater to your husband's desires and, and longings? Go home, ask your spouse, what are some ways that I can show you honor in our intimate life together? The gospel transforms us from takers to givers. How, how does it do that? It does it ultimately from, it comes from, from another garden in the Bible. I mentioned three gardens so far. There's, there's a fourth garden in the Bible. Adam and Eve destroyed the first garden. They let the serpent enter and they followed the serpent into rebellion against God. But the Bible describes another day when Jesus was in another garden and the tempter came. He was facing the cross and the tempter said, Why, why do you need to go to the cross for these people? And, and Jesus prayed, echoed in Hebrews 10. Jesus prayed, not my will, Father, but yours be done. And the Bible says to, has the audacity to say to us that Jesus went to the cross for the joy of it. It's the beauty of the cross. The beauty of the Son's love for the Father who said, Not my will, but yours be done. This is the ethos of Christianity because this is what Jesus Christ did. He found joy in sacrifice, in service, in honoring his Father, so we find joy in honoring and serving one another. Is it odd to think about the Garden of Gethsemane and your bedroom? They don't seem to go together, really, do they? And yet, yet Christ is setting the stage for us in the most intimate part of your marriage. When he demonstrates for us the joy of self-sacrifice, and when that story sinks deeply into your heart, when it really sets down roots, it changes you. It changes you publicly in all the ways that you serve your husband or your wife, and it changes you behind closed doors too as you give yourself away. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we want to be grateful to you for this um, great gift 
of sexual intimacy that you have given us. Father, I know that in, in this room, with, with every marriage, there's a, a different story and a different um, level of, of joy and comfort and discomfort and pain and struggle and guilt and shame. There's, um, each, each person here, these words strike in a different tone. Uh, Father, we, we, we want to be true to your word, so I pray, Father, that you would, by your spirit, apply what you say to our minds and our hearts. Uh, fill these men and women in this room, these, those who are, are married, with great joy in their spouse. I, I pray that, that today, even talking about it, would be useful in, in their lives for them to think carefully and, and, and wonderfully about this great gift that you have given. God, make us gospel-centered friends and lovers, we pray. For those who are, are thinking about this in, in, in the future as, as, as single young adults, God, uh, help us all, help them in particular and us all to pursue purity because huh, the pure in heart will see God. Thank you for your great kindness to us through Jesus our Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.